Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, my guest today is Scott Reynolds Nelson, the Georgia Athletics Association Professor of the Humanities at the University of Georgia, author of numerous books. His latest is Oceans of Grain, How American Wheat Remade the World, and it is the subject of our conversation today. Scott Nelson, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me, Al. It's great to be here. So let's talk about the Black Paths. You begin the book discussing the Black Paths and the travelers of the Black Paths. And I had a sneaking suspicion that at some point in the process of writing the book, you thought about calling it the Black Paths. But maybe the editor threw their way in front of you, like, uh, you know, like trying to push a trolley out of the way of, uh, uh, you know, or no, a, a, a param out of the way of a trolley is what I was trying to say. But I don't know. Right. But the, the Black Paths are fascinating and they stick with me. So what are they? Yeah. Chor- yeah. The Chornish Lucky, uh, the, the, the uh, is a it's a, a Russian um, Ukrainian word for Black Paths and they're ancient. Right. So they're they're discussed. You see all these medieval documents and maps with the black paths, which are travel routes that 
according to the Chumaki, the people who travel with these goods, are are ancient. They go back to um, before time, before written communication, and it's how grain gets into cities uh, from the countryside. And thinking about those black paths for me is the way of kind of understanding an economy and understanding how empires build up understanding civilization, I guess. And at one point, much later in the book, you just you talk about how the right way of seeing the world is streams. I would say, right. and I would say streams going across oceans, streams right. going de- down, sometimes down literal streams, but not always, um, but they c- connecting everything. And those are the streams. Those are the black, the modern black paths of the, of the agriculture economy. Right, right. And so we think about, uh, when we think about the past, we think about those images of, you know, the red and the green and the blue, the, the, we think of the capitals, we think of different empires and things like that. And if you're a grain trader, you think about where the food comes from, where it goes to, how does it arrive at the ports? And for them, for people who are in the grain trade, that's the most important way of understanding the world. And if you kind of put those eyeglasses on, which is kind of what the book is about, Mm-hmm. You see the sort of tensions and the critical points uh, very differently, I think, and the sources of friction and the potential sources for revolution. And that's yeah. ultimately my my uh, man crush, uh, Parvis, is the, <laughs> is the character who, who figures this out, right? We'll, get, we'll out. get to him in a little bit because I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I work I, – it's uh, – you bring uh, this – the man crush much up – much further into the, the front of the book, but I, I this is my conversation, so I'm going to move it around a little bit. Um, I wanted to – but I, what I want – one of the many places in which this book goes is suggesting that we should probably reconceive how civilization began. So I, I think that, you know, we would say, oh, well, cities are created and it makes no sense when you put it like the cities are created and that creates the farm because they need food. But what did they do? Did they build the city and say, hey, wait a second, we need some food. Let's start farming. No, of course right. they didn't say that. That would be silly. So what's right. what's your uh, hypothesis you lay out? Well, so so there's been a lot of debate about this, but there's been this great work done by uh, geneticists using next generation genome sequencing, uh, looking at teeth to mm-hmm. identify Yersinia pestis, which is the plague which travels along these black paths. And what it shows is that there are a very long time before there are civilizations. We have these communities of um uh, Kind of grain producers who are trading goods over long distances. Uh, and back before the Neolithic era, we have people moving from place to place, dropping seeds along the way, and that those paths ultimately become the places that connect the place where food is grown, which is dry, flat places, to the place where uh, other things are, stone and uh, uh you know, leather and, and and these other goods and the coming together of those is is what we call civilization and that the civilizers quote unquote the emperors and other things like that are people who grab onto those paths and uh build along them so, so that's, the, that's a for some reason these people that the chumaki the chumaki uh-huh. they we, i mean thanks to genetic archaeology we know they've been there for 3,000, 4,000 years. That's not an exaggeration. So before the Scythians, before every stinking freaking nomadic tribe that you can't remember from, you know, the late antique history. Right, right. There were these Chumaki plodding around, 
like yeah, ox carrying yeah. wheat back and forth. Uh, it, right. it, it does sound like a Microsoft sort of civilization game, kind of like that, you know. <laughs> right. But it's, right. It, but that's it's a really kind of extraordinary thing. I, that at least it leads to more questions that are like, why are they there? <laughs> why right. do, why right. do they decide to do this? But right. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what Yersinia pestis, what ultimately becomes a plague shows us is that food and other goods uh, travel much further distances than humans travel. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there are these trade goods that are going from one end of uh, the Eurasian, um, you know, from, from Ireland, even all the way to, to Manchuria in a period where there are no civilizations that exist, but no humans travel that, that distance. Right. And so what we see are just groups of people trading with each other and the goods then making this massive, massive, long connections uh, over kind of impossible distances. And that's well before any civilizations exist. And so that's one of the things they're carrying is grain. And so (laughs) those black paths, I think, are the where we start when we need to talk about civilization. So extraordinarily enough, one of the earliest recorded poems, hymns, is the hymn to Demeter. Which is itself a a techne. It's it's a way of preserving a certain type of knowledge about the grain process. Could you ex- explain uh, what right. does that? Right. So so the standard argument is is that you know um, Demeter has the daughter Persephone who's stolen and taken underground, and she searches for her. And this is often thought of as a story of planting wheat, right? Uh, that that she's buried underground, and will come back later. What um, it was around the 19th century that a classicist uh, who's looking at the language, looking at the text point, from Oxford pointed out that this is not a story about planting. This is a story about storing grain for the next planting, that, that what you have to do is put it in a sealed container underground um, to preserve it over uh, the winter so that it can be replanted either in the spring or in the fall. And that what you have to do to preserve Persephone, the daughter of the wheat flower, the, the seeds themselves, is, is, is to protect it from either being colonized by fungi, which just turns it, starts to turn it either, either into grain or either into bread or, or something, um, or spoiled in other, in other kinds of ways. And so keeping it dry, keeping it underground, that's Persephone's story. She's underground. And then it's later when Demeter takes off her cloak, which is the, you know, the harvest, uh, sits by the fireside, uh, beats some wheat together. We have the re- kind of recipe in, in the hymn to Demeter to how it is that you produce uh, food from mm-hmm. those from those seeds. So uh, the presumption is that this story of, of Demeter is really, and her daughter Persephone is really a kind of story you tell children so that they know what to do in the next harvest, right? After the harvest, you need to set aside, it's really 20% of the yield for the next planting, and if, if you're on a farm, that's the important thing, right? Growing and planting and harvesting, all that's good, but you need to be ready for the next year. And the crucial part there is to preserve it and store it underground in a, in a safe, dry place. Yeah, well, I love that. I love that whole analogy because, um, you know, the line, uh, the border between nature and culture runs through a barnyard. <laughs> right. Right, and uh, so here we have something that is, is is high art in many ways. This is and also becomes high religion, the Eleusinian mysteries. It's it's all, also it's also something deeply practical, um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and far, as as all farming has to be. Um, the um, this 
this is written down at about a time where there's extraordinary explosion of of Greeks from around the Aegean Sea, what we call the Aegean Sea, going everywhere. And we'll be talking about this hopefully in the next couple of weeks with, with other people. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the most fascinating things is sort of a lo- this lost kingdom of Pontus, I think it is, that eventually mm-hmm. will spread along the, the northern and western littorals of the Black Sea. Um, mm-hmm. so, from a, so from the time that the Iliad is finally being written down, the Odyssey is finally being written down, there's an international grain harvest without which these fascinating, scintillating cities along the Ionian and Aegean seas. They can't operate without mm-hmm. Ukrainian grain, Ukrainian wheat. So it's an extraordinary thing that think that's happening at 500 BC, right? And it's it's kind of lost, right? It's it disappears in the Middle Ages and afterwards, and so people know about these things because there are ruins all over the Black Sea. But it's but they're crucial, right? And so the Iliad, the Odyssey, and in part about that recovery, uh, in in way, it's a it's a kind of hymn to the Aristoi. The people who deliver the grain from the Black Sea to the cities, the, their stories, their adventures, uh, made more fanciful, obviously. <laughs> there aren't a lot of uh, Cyclops and uh, things like that on the Black Sea. Well, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> we'll, talk, we'll talk about the Russian mob later. <laughs> but but that, uh, yeah, so so the Aristoi are, are in these massive ships. Uh, ships like that don't... Yeah cross through these oceans for uh, thousands of years later. Uh, the Romans don't have ships that large as the, these ancient Greek ships. And um, yeah, and, it, and they're filled, of course, with grain. Uh, they're making it possible to have these magical cities uh, in the kind of Greek, uh, ancient Greek world. I, I, I'm sorry you didn't sign up for this. I'm pretty sure you didn't sign up for this when you... <laughs> <laughs> with the title about how American wheat changed the world. <laughs> no, but I was, I was happy to eat. Um, and then, I mean, in many ways, without understanding, without realizing it, Venetians and the Genoese recapitulate this entire thing. They recapitulate everything, right? The ships aren't as big, but they're bringing grain from exactly the same spots. They even bring your Cena pestis to Europe from Kaffa. I mean, it's like recapitulating the entire previous 2,000 years. It's quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that second time is what we the birth of what we call capitalism. Right. Yeah. That's where we see uh, the a, a different, uh, you know, uh, ensuring that trade is goes back to the ancient Greeks. But but a, um, a you know, c- kind of making a profit off that trade and then. Well, 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 I mean, profit. since I got a historian, you're trying to tell me the Irish story. The Irish story weren't trying to make a profit because I don't believe it. I don't, I don't believe, <laughs> okay. I believe that. Mm. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a, maybe a, re-in, a reinvention or redevelopment of capitalism, but at least it looks like to me that, you know, why else am I, I, I there must be some sort of incentive other than display and status to build a 10,000 or. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I I, I entirely agree. It's just, uh, there are things about capitalism, being able to invest in shares, for example. Right. Uh, This is the famous Stephen Epstein's, like, my ancestors in Genoa, little old lady could put a, buy a share of a grain ship going to Kaffa for, and grain and slaves uh, to drop off, to take to Alexandria. And then something from Alexandria back to Genoa, you know, this is, this is how it works. Right. So, so the so there is risk. There is you know insurance. There is profit. But it's it's made into a kind of uh, 
fungible asset which can be distributed and and collected by everyday people that's that makes uh it's it's part of what just makes capitalism different from the sort of ancient trade that I so that, it's interesting about. how our definition of capitalism always gets more it has to it has to be more developed sometimes than it it's 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 thrown around uh, a lot um it does it is uh so let's uh fast forward to catherine the great uh right now the subject of everyone's favorite sexy miniseries uh uh, but I don't think it will. That sexy miniseries will talk about her interest in physiocracy. I doubt it. <laughs> so what's what's physiocracy and what's it to Catherine the Great and how is this the only thing she shared with Thomas Jefferson? <laughs> so physiocratic expansion. That there you have these French. Uh, we call them economists now. They call themselves you know the economists uh, were. Uh, they're not quite like Adam Smith. They're not. They don't believe in free trade. They believe that grain is the basis. Uh, farming is the basis of an economy. That you need to protect that, and you need to uh, put as few restraints on it as possible. So, if you're going to tax, don't tax the farmer. Tax the landlord. If you're going to uh, uh, engage in trade, you need to not put any limits on that trade. Uh, you need to allow markets, the prices of these things to go up and down. That's the, the, the French physiocrats are sort of making, telling enlightened despots in France how to operate their economy. And that language and that sort of explanation of how to do this is not exactly how empires worked in the past. <laughs> and it's it's a recipe for a particular kind of way of treating agriculture that both Catherine the Great and Thomas Jefferson, as well as Benjamin Franklin, become obsessed with. <laughs> and they say... Oh, all right. So, so the, the so the center of the world is not the center of an empire is not about expanding armies and building you know uh, lasting monuments. It's uh, taking grain and throwing it out on the water and selling it to other states so that you can generate some surplus and uh, you know allow that society to contribute. And both Catherine the Great and Thomas Jefferson and and, and Franklin are reading this. And they forge these states, which then go out and rob land <laughs> to the rob the plains of the people who are living on those plains. Mostly, mostly hunter gatherers take away their uh, livelihood and create a livelihood built on um, on grain expansion. Some people call this settler colonialism. It's I, I don't love that phrase, but it's it it's, captures it's, it's hip. It's new. Yeah. <laughs> It's, but, it, but it does capture what's going on, that both yes. Russia and the United States are making this kind of violent expansion into the plains uh, on behalf of what I call physiocratic expansion. No, well, well, part of what's good about settler colonialism is it does uh, is does decenter that process. It's no longer just the, something that you're doing. And I mean, you know, the, how to put it, Jacksonians were uh, – poor Jacksonians were a lot more interested in – in sort of moving on to native lands uh, than mm-hmm. a lot of rich Quakers in Philadelphia, um, it's it, it 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 moves the whole the whole impetus down to a lower level. But having said that, is it to Tocqueville probably who realizes the similarity between what he sees in America and what's going on in Russia? That's the famous ending of Book One of the de- Democracy in America. That uh, that they're... I never got to that part. Tell me, tell me about it. <laughs> well, basically, he 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 goes on this peroration at the end. And he says they're mm-hmm. both of them are driving into the open spaces, dispossessing them uh, of the people's. You know, right. um, now he mm-hmm. tends to. He is not. Uh, 
I, I should say, I, I people have accused him of underrating a violence on the American frontier against the Indians. This is not true. Not true if you actually read what he says. Um, but he certainly sees the Russian expansion as more violent, and he he might be thinking also the 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 expansion of the Caucasus, uh, toward, you know, and, and so I don't know. It's it's interesting because I, I gave a talk about this at Yale, and I was saying that the American expansion into the West is just as brutal and violent as the Russian expansion into the Caucasus and into the Plains, uh, the dispossession of the people in those areas. And the pushback was, oh, well, you're, um, you're, you're minimizing the American expansionism by comparing it to the Russian expansionism. <laughs> I thought, wow, <laughs> the brutality of the Russian expansionism was, it was so well understood in the 19th century. Like that was the definition of yeah. evil for them. And so it, it, it was, it was quite strange to, to, yeah. I would be interesting. Who don't really understand how, how, how violent and cruel and, and horrible the Russian expansion was to say American expansion is like Russian expansionism is to, yeah, um, it's like, one of them was pretty, right? No, it's not. It's, uh, but they, they, yeah, it's, I'm afraid that they were all, it was a room, was it a room full of American historians? Cause that would, uh, uh, that would no, make but, it. Uh, it was a room full of historians who didn't know much about Russian history, I think. So, well, so they, that's, that's, uh, yeah. but, but yeah, they're both brutal and violent expansions, and they're about taking plains yeah. and converting it to, to grasslands, to converting grasslands into plains, uh, producing grain, and then uh, exporting it for an international market. And that's that's the the dream, the kind of utopian vision of the physiocracy that's that born out. What um, so we, they've got physiocracy. We've we've set that up. We've got this is Jefferson's empire of liberty. This is mm-hmm. his also belief in the in the the. The, the nobility of the yeoman farmer. Um, what are the sizes? On the other hand, uh, he's also dealing half of his country, including his half, and right where I'm sitting is slave mm-hmm. is a slave society. Um, uh, in other words, it's an economy that depends upon slavery in order to to make money um, mm-hmm. for the all the all parts of the economy depend upon it. Uh, and also, I hadn't realized this, but Catherine is legally changing serfdom. For a nice German girl, she really shouldn't be doing this. She's changing serfdom into become making it more like chattel slavery. Could you explain that? Yeah, so it's it's uh, that was a surprise to me, but but it makes sense in retrospect that she wanted land to be alienable, and she wanted she she didn't like the fact that peasants had some sort of claim to the land, and so she increased in the in the nakaz, which she promotes after reading all these uh, physiocrats. She basically tries to make. Uh, Russian society is much like colonial plantation society as she can. And so um, it, it means that the uh, the czar cannot take land from landowners. Landowners can sell land to anyone else, any other landowner, large landowner. Um, and the, uh, she calls them rabi, which is the Russian word for slave rather uh, than the, the, the word for peasant. And, and she in, basically in these, rules tries to make them as much like slaves as as possible to make it possible for the land to be bought and sold on a on a market so her dream is really again to um to have these farms that are producing grain but she doesn't see it as you know uh, jefferson's family farm exactly she sees it as jefferson plantation right as as something with um you know 50 or 100 enslaved or or enserfed 
workers who are producing wheat, uh, packaging it all up and distributing it over long distances. So sort of a little after this period, by say 1812, 1815 thereabouts, sort Mm -hmm. of certain rediscover there's been a rediscovery of grain storing secrets so that changes everything again could you ex- explain what that is yeah so that's that i found uh quite by accident and, and it's not well documented in any of the secondary literature but um it is it's an important part of what napoleon wants to do when hmm. he invades italy is to figure out how the romans stored grain underground it had been lost sometime between 300 AD and 1400 AD that um, this this ability to store grain underground, and so it, European peasants in uh, in the kind of mid- Middle Ages and afterwards are storing grain uh, above in these rickets that dry the grain, but it doesn't last for very long. Rats get to it and things like that. But they understand that the Romans had this way, just just like the Greeks did, of storing grain underground um, for long periods of time. Uh, Alexander of Macedon has this problem when he's when he's uh, you know traveling around in this area that that uh, he, he understands that farmers have hidden grain, but it's underground and he can't figure out where it has been. So the secrets of Persephone, they send out he sends out chemists. Napoleon sends out chemists into Italy, and they inspect these Roman ruins and they figure out that you drain a dry grain, keep it around under twenty percent water. Uh, uh, heat it and dry it. And then once you've done that, you can cover it in a perfectly uh, sealed container. And so the French word for that is silo, that <laughs> new invention, which is a re, really a reinvention of, a, of an ancient Roman uh, technique, probably an ancient Greek technique. And the American word for that is elevator. And this is new. It's an ability, it, it, and it makes it possible to, for again, for those ten thousand or ships to travel over the over the ocean, because you can send very large quantities of grain over very long distances, uh, without worrying so much about their spoiling. So that's um, there's a bring Jefferson back into this, which is I, when mm-hmm. I read this part, I thought there's a a line, there's a couple of things in the notes in Standard Virginia where he imagines mm-hmm. how can we solve the problem with spoilage of grain. Once right. we solve that, we'll be able to move towards a Basically, he's saying we can move away from slavery. Right, right. Because he, he knows, like, like as Washington knows, when he switches to grain in 1768, any good Southern farmer knows that you don't need like the the labor that you need for tobacco or cotton is mm-hmm. is continual labor. You need it all the entire life cycle of the plant, but for wheat. Um, I know that we just put in a we just put in winter wheat on the farm. You put it in and you wait, and you look at the sky and you cuss and you wait, and then eventually <laughs> you harvest. Which right, kind of how you do it. Yeah, the month of the planting and the month of the harvest, uh, and right, and and so that it doesn't have that kind of year round requirement. And and Tocqueville understands that 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 you know that uh, cotton and tobacco and things like that take a year round process and that's uh, that makes it now there is there are plenty of virginian enslavers who like washington and jefferson who are growing wheat um but but so the story i guess of this physiocratic expansion is uh a, a moving into the to these regions where the plains are producing a lot of wheat and then figuring out a way of getting it uh, across the atlantic that takes it's not until about 18 uh 1819 or 1820, that it's possible to ship that across the Atlantic. But mostly what the United States is doing, what we, mm-hmm. we think of the United States and the American colonies who are uh, the American 
continental colonies, is they're feeding the the, the uh, slave plantations in the Caribbean. Yes, and that that it's it's hard it's easy to forget that we think about as cotton and things like that as being important, but Napoleon and many of these other you know imperial leaders think the, the it's really a provisioning area for the real value producing slave killing mm-hmm. uh, region between 10 and 20 degrees north of the equator where cotton I'm sorry uh, tobacco sugar and uh, these other drugs are are grown for export sure uh, I mean there's I mean as we, sugar and coffee. Yeah. why are you going to raise food on Barbados or or horses when you can cover the place in sugar? So everything has to come for every part of life it has to come from the northern colonies. And, and and intentionally so, not just because you can't grow it, but because you don't want enslaved people to have food. I mean, it, there's there's a there's a certain amount of starving that's required. Yeah, that's true. To make slavery work on a on, on a on an island, and that's uh, the food is coming from you, the Americas. And you've also and, you've also got a garden designed for making sugar. I mean, there's a reason why you know when they started playing tobacco in Jamestown, they were playing in the streets. Um, mm-hmm. Because they couldn't get enough space, <laughs> the, and right. so that those those monocultures always demand or they're tyrants when it comes to space. So mm-hmm. you know the the horses of Barbados were famous. They all were raised in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so uh, so this is this is the this so that this is the connection of we want to develop this connection of slavery and grain or the lack of a connection. But um, let's move to another plague. P infestans. I can't pronounce this. What is this? Fight, 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 fight. No, I can't do it. P infestans. It's the potato. Bl- it's the pl- it's a potato blight. Is what it is. So what's, yeah. what? What? What does that do for grain? Removes a prominent competitor. Um, and then. <laughs> Right, so so uh, it's it's Frederick the Great and other uh, European emperors that European emperors and kings that try to uh, promote the, the spread of the potato, and they spread this potato all across Europe. Uh, it's a, basically a peasant crop, and it's widely adopted. Uh, the thing about it is that as it moves in um, in in this area, the way it's replanted is by um, not by seeds, but by uh, t- taking a, a piece of the potato itself, which makes them genetically identical. Now, for ten, for a hundred thousand, no, no, for thirty thousand years, uh, the potato had been followed by pea infestans, and so pea infestans was there in the Inca Empire. Um, but for reasons that we don't fully understand, the first group of potatoes that was brought to the New World, uh, to the Old World. Was uh, didn't have any pea infestans. It's it's co-evolved uh, consumer, and um, these genetically identical potatoes are spread around, and they they make it possible. It, it, poor people's food is the potato, rich people's food is grain, and uh, this works pr- pretty well until pea infestans makes its way across the Atlantic in 1842, a breeding pair of pea infestans. So it's it's it has multiple life cycles, but it's got a, a breeding. Um, and, and the way it reproduces is, is complicated, but it's a water mold uh, that sp- spreads across. And then once it hits uh, Antwerp, it spreads a- uh, across Europe and Great Britain and wipes out potatoes in very large numbers. And it's kind of unstoppable. It, it doesn't have black paths. It can travel 
uh, with wind. It can travel on butterflies. It can travel on birds. <laughs> and it, it, uh, it just wipes out poor people's food throughout Europe. So the, and the, know- fam- the famine's not just happening in Ireland. It's really bad in Ireland. It's worse Absolutely. than anywhere else, but it's happening everywhere throughout Eastern Europe. Exactly. And so it's especially bad in, in Ireland because of the way that land is, redist- is distributed and people are on these tiny little plots and all they're eating is potatoes. But um, but yeah, no, much of Central Europe is just wiped out by this famine. It takes a little bit longer, 45, 46, 47. And the revenues of 1848 are really about this um, this, this conflict because people are running out of food. <laughs> the res- response to that for empires, which have been putting up barriers to, to block grain from other places, is to drop simultaneously drop barriers all around the world. And that's where we get what we call free trade. So the potato blight is the greatest weapon in the free trader's arsenal. Manchester, liberal, Manchester liberalism rides to victory on top of the potato famine. The potato famine. I mean, right. And none of them, yeah. Yeah, and none of them thought that this was going to lead to economic growth. They just thought it was going to. I mean, Peel and these other people say, say that this is all about stopping re- revolution. Mm-hmm. They don't see it as any kind of uh, solution to economic growth or economic development. Nobody's really predicting that, but that's precisely what happens. But, but all of a sudden, there's cheap food, lots and cheap. lots of cheap food. Uh, right. And as you say, white bread became fast food, which is it's right. extraordinary to think of it in that way. But of course, it's that way. Um, people have right. starch; they have car- they have quick carbs uh, for the mm-hmm. as, and they're all clustering in the as they and they they can cluster in cities now in right. in industrial. They can have you can have an industrial city, right, right, in a way that you couldn't before because food is so cheap. The people who hate this, obviously, it's called Ricardo's paradox that the more, you know, that, that um, as the sort of capacity to get grain from other places goes up, um, land prices are going to go down in rural areas. And so landlords hate the idea of cheap grain coming from these two slavery empires, the Russian empire and the American empire. And so the part of what I'm trying to do is really put American history in, con- in conversation with Russian history, not just during the you know, the Civil War and mm-hmm. the end of Serfdom and Enslaved, but all the way back, really. To, these are the two edges of Europe, and they feed Europe, mm-hmm. um, or, or, and they struggle to feed Europe. The United States can't do it until 1865. Russia is doing it, really, from the time of Napoleon up until um, uh, the 1850s. And, and the, eight, the potato famine makes it possible for Russia to feed Europe and makes industrialization possible in much of Europe. So I want to get to the American Russian in the 1850s and then the yeah. period of American Civil War. But before that, you talk about the creation of what you call the European Consumption Accumulation City, which is right. not harmonious sounding, but is interesting. <laughs> so could you explain what you mean by that? I mean, th- thanks sounds, to thanks to cheap wheat. <laughs> it sounds better in German, but yeah, it, uh, uh, yeah, uh, it, all, it all sounds better in the original German. <laughs> but uh, the consumption accumulation city is um, so. So once once you have pea infestants, and once it's wiped out your potato crops, and once grain is what you're feeding to uh, poor people, then it becomes very important to have long ports. It becomes very important for these consumption accumulation cities to well, they draw people in because food is cheaper in cities than it is in the countryside for the first time ever, really. So that uh, because if you have a deep port and you bring and the and the grain is cheap, the last mile of delivery from grain to bread 
is cheap, that, that bread is literally cheaper in cities than in the countryside. And you tell that to a 10th century peasant, it, it would be impossible, right? Uh, well, but it, 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 you tell that to an 18th century peasant. Right. right. That's the right. amazing thing. Or even an 1810 peasant, and it's still not possible. Right. That's, a, that's, that's right. the scale of this change is so amazing. Right, right. And, and that, that inversion is so important for understanding European industrialization, European urbanization. And what European industrialization and urbanization, Europeans are constantly, European historians are constantly patting themselves on the back about, you know, this and that, all these European advantages. It's really just taking advantage of Russia and America, uh, well, primarily Russia, which is the simultaneously pr- the provisioner of Europe and the policeman for Europe. Because when you have conflicts, uh, you know, you send in the Russian cavalry to, to put down your uh, your peasant revolts and mm-hmm. uh, urban urban revolts and stuff like that, like the revolutions of eighteen forty eight. So, so that's the that's the, the transformation that we're we're talking about it and getting our head around how important and big that transformation is, is really, I think that's how we get cities. Um, that's how we get accumulation of capital in cities. That's how we get foreign investment. Uh, that's how we get investment banking. Uh, yeah. Really, I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to factor. Eating better is easy with factors, delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus and keto. These are two minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat. So there's no prepping, cooking or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah all these uh, um yeah it, it this this book will drive warning it's like there's a famous i think matt graining had the uh, sort of a taxonomy of professors and they're like the crazy professor and like the, the the pro is that he's deeply inspiring the problem is you might start to believe him <laughs> Uh, but it, it, it it's what's wonderful about this book is that it's like let's start what we talk, say about historical i mean history history is a way of seeing and this is a sub this is a, a way of seeing the past and the present is this this way of seeing grain it's really it really is it's given me a new set of glasses um so let's talk about this uh it, it's as you said as you alluded to it's often noticed that russia and america undergo the movement away from chattel slavery and serfdom at all really in terms of world history almost the same moment the same millisecond um what happens in the 1850s that drives them to that not surprisingly i'm just gonna say the answer is grain but what about (laughs) what about grain (laughs) Uh, so what uh so sorry what what drives so so the simp for russia it's it's a it's a complicated story about why russia abandons serfdom it's it's a really it's a kind of a complex accounting trick really Mm -hmm. where um the this this um the crimean war which is which is you know uh 
uh, World War, I don't know, 0.1 or something like that. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a war between uh, Russia and the Allied powers about uh, Istanbul. And, and it's uh, the, the Russia's attempt to sort of take Turkey off the map and uh, c- control the gates of the Bosporus, which is a very important, crucial grain port, um, to, it, grain passing in and out. Of the of that port is is really that's the pulse of the world. That's why mm-hmm. Justinian and and um, uh, it, it, that's why we had these massive empires. We could go back to the Peloponnesian War in many ways. That's yeah. the the, the mm-hmm. climactic battles of the Peloponnesian War are fought on the Bosporus. Why? Because of the grain. It's all the grain. You see, I've completely converted, but it, it's true. That's what. That's why they were there. Right. So, so the Crimean War is one in which Russia loses, so quite surprisingly. Right. It's it's at the top, really, of its of as a, as a kind of imperial expansionist power, and uh, France and uh, France and Britain together kind of take Russia out of the equation, and Russia faces a serious balance of payments crisis. Uh, most of the Russian banks are few, are making it possible to provide. Uh, loans yeah. to, to you, large you, as As you write, thus the empire's long-term problem was serfs, its middle-term problem was serfs, and its short-term <laughs> problem was paying for its failed, you're enjoying yourself, was paying for its failed war against Turkey, France, and Britain, but also serfs. But so that so they had to pay off their payments and then they had the problem with serfs. So why were serfs why did they, they circumscribe the entire political and strategic vision of the empire is what you're what you're right. You're, Yes. Yes. You're saying it. You're saying it better than I'm saying it. But, so, so I, <laughs> but, well, I, I. But I'm still not sure I understand why. Oh, I see. So. So the 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 story is um, basically that that serfdom the the most dynamic part of the Russian economy is actually in Ukraine, right in South Russia. That's where the wealth is being generated. That's that's what Catherine the Great understood that that all of this wealth is being generated in these regions, and it's not a place with a great deal of serfdom. Ukraine does not have a lot of it. So um, all the whole banking infrastructure of Russia is built on supporting serfdom and making it possible for large surf owners to do this. But it's a, it's really family farms uh, with about a thousand acres in Ukraine that are producing much of the grain that's being exported. A thousand acres or more that are being exported to the rest of the world, mostly Europe. Mm-hmm. And that whole infrastructure collapses right around 1860. And the solution to that, the only solution to that is to get out of the surf business and Russia does that by basically having the serfs pay for their own freedom. And that's, that's how serfdom ends. Because the dynamic portion of the economy in Russia is not Russia itself. It's South Russia, what we now call Ukraine. And that's the, the sort of driving force. So it is capitalism. And it's about grain itself, which is a two-month crop, which doesn't need serfdom. It needs lots and lots and lots of mobile laborers but, uh, for the harvest. But it does not need serfdom. And so, so it's it collapses the the kind of whole imperial structure collapses financially uh, when when it's defeated in war. So that's leading them up to uh, to the end of serfdom. What mm-hmm. is concomitantly happening in the eighteen fifties about about grain? Because this is there there's there's math involved here too. 
<laughs> so, so there's a lot, there's a great deal of grain. Oh, right. So there's a, uh, yeah, sorry, this is both financial history yeah. and social history. And so there is a financial story here, which is that uh, railroads become a way, the way of funding railroads replaces the old way of funding, you know, serfs. So Russia has got a whole banking system built around serfdom. The United States is developing a whole banking system built on expanding railroads to the West and railroads are themselves are kind of banks, which are selling land in small plots on installments to farmers who are going to settle these regions, produce grain, sell it and buy more land. That whole banking slash railroad process, we, we need to think, stop thinking of a railroad as a train and think of a railroad as a bank. The railroad is lending to farmers so that they can settle on this land and it's getting paid back uh, getting getting it paid back quickly by those uh, by those mortgages for the land, and this process works really really well in Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, and it works really crappy in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Virginia. So they start a bunch of these railroads and they never finish them because they can't make any money. Southern planters get ticked about uh, this massive expansion of people into Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. And ultimately Kansas, and and they try to put a stop to it. That conflict is the conflict over westward expansion. That conflict brings us civil war. Mm-hmm. And this is because um, there's no reason to go from. I mean, this is putting it too too. This is not the right way, but it's there's no reason to go from southern city to southern city. Um, there's there's nothing to take. Right, and in the uh, north, there's something to take from Indianapolis to Chicago to Omaha uh, to Minneapolis, and so on. Right. So, so you think about the goods that are flowing from west to east in the south, and that's cotton. Yeah. What are the goods flowing from east to west? Very little. You know, planters need suspenders. Planters need plow points. Planters need whatever. But the, but enslaved people are not consuming many goods. There's some shoes once a year, things like that, but there are very, very few things consumed. Uh, That's very different if you're looking at Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. What's going from west to east? Lots and lots of grain. What's going from east to west? All of these nostrums and, you know, goods and things that are, that are filling the shops that are in all of these small towns in Indiana, Ohio, and stuff like that. And so the railroads can send goods east and send goods west. In the South, they can send goods <laughs> west to east, but they can't send anything east to west. That's not a problem for a road. It's a huge problem for a railroad because you have to charge double for goods flowing from west to east because the, the, the trains are going back empty. So this is what professors always say in the American survey class when they're, we look at a map of the railroad in the Civil War. We'll say, well, the, the railroads in the South, they exist, but they're short and they just go to ports. And it's like you can see that there's the, the implication is that's a real lack of vision. Um, but no, it's, it's capital flowing downhill, isn't it? I mean, it's like, it's like water. It's going, it's going where it will go. Right, and and so railroads are proposed, and it makes perfect sense to get the to get those the cotton and things like and tobacco from west to east. But there's nothing coming back, and the railroads fail again and again and again in the south. That's why they're state supported in the south. Mm-hmm. The, uh, they're they're at least fifty to seventy five percent owned by states because they can't support themselves. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it's a difference between north. So there's a banking railroad infrastructure that exists in the north. Uh, and those the people who are behind that infrastructure, I call them the boulevard barons, um, are the ones who help to bring about a war. 
mm-hmm. a war over um, what's the West going to look like? Is it going to have slaves, enslaved people? If it's going to have enslaved people, the railroads are not going to pay. If it's going to be free farming and grain production, it is going to pay. And uh, this matters in the tens of millions of dollars to somebody like John Murray Forbes mm-hmm. or these other people who are very strong Republicans, the people who support uh, John Brown in, in West Virginia. And these are guys in their like late 20s and early 30s, mid 30s. Like the elderly among them are like 35 Right. Right. If you like. right. I mean, these are so these are young um, go getters um, and they and they they have they want to make money and they also have passionate ideals. They, they believe they, they have both at once. It's they're a fascinating group that you talk about. Right. They, 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 it's, it's funny because they are the 1%, but yeah. they're obsessed. They, they hate the kind of 1% in the South. They hate those planters and they believe that the planters mess up the land and things like that. And to just, they're willing to ultimately believe it. So I don't want to suggest that anti-slavery sentiment is not coming from enslaved people. I don't want to suggest that anti-slavery. No, no, no there is not. Right. So, so there really is an anti-slavery movement that's led by black people in the North. It's, it's very important. But we also need to understand that there are financial backers who are very committed to ending slavery because they see it as not being a, yeah. a kind of profitable uh, system for themselves. We have to explain also a few things like, you know, how did the Republican Party get so successfully organized so quickly and so strongly? And, and they're an answer to it, too. And then uh, how did these guys basically then win the war? Um, right. By among other things, I mean. So, from the perspective of, of this, the it's not just nitroglycerin and the telegraph that are important out of the Civil War. It's the futures futures trading. So these guys develop futures trading, and that changes everything, right? I mean, it's a that, right. So, can you explain that? Futures market changes everything, and and I'm I'm here disagreeing with William Cronin, who sees the futures market as sort of growing up naturally inside Chicago, having mm-hmm. connected with railroad ship and stuff like that. And I, and I want to suggest that that's not important, but the first futures trade takes place during the Civil War, and it's basically where um, a future contract for grain is broken up into a hundred little pieces, uh, to, you know, a uh, thousand bushels or ten thousand bushels each, and bought and sold by traders. As the price of wheat goes up and down, many, many people are participating, not many, many people, but dozens of people, scores of people are uh, buying and selling these this, this future grain. And it makes it possible for very long distance delivery of grain, including at Chattanooga. And that's initially where the first uh, those first shipments of, of initially oats and then grain are going to is to save the Union troops in Chattanooga in 1863 uh, because they are surrounded by Confederates almost entirely, you know, almost completely surrounded. Chattanooga is the best place to start uh, Sherman's March to the Sea and, and um, Sherman's March to the Carolinas. Uh, but to do that, you need very long distance, a covered, protected, long distance grain travel. And that's what the Union Army puts together. We, th- we tend to think about this as private people. We tend to think about this as, you know, uh, um, Tom Scott, maybe, or uh, the, um, you know, the, the, Van- the Vanderbilt. It's that's not, these aren't the people that do this. It's the Union Army, mm-hmm. the U.S. Army that sets up this railroad corridor. With a lot and of these five competing corridors, yeah. With a lot of these guys they brought in from industry and who go back into doing the same thing in, within weeks, right, of the end of the war. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, and, 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 and of course, the futures shares make 
when you've got an army under siege, basically you're taking right. a bet as a futures contract when you're putting on the price of grain and whether or not that they'll mm-hmm. win or lose. That's kind of that that, that. right. Right. And it's quite profitable if you think, you know, and the, and, and it's, it's actually illegal to speculate in gold. Uh, if you speculate, you can speculate in gold during the war. Um, gold prices are going to go down. If a union has a victory, they're going to go up compared to dollars when the, when the union has a, a loss. But, um, but that's, that's actually illegal and considered an unpatriotic. And it's considered more patriotic to buy future grain, mm-hmm. expecting to resell it to the Union Army over time. Um, and, that, and the price of grain is going to go up or down depending on those battles. If, it's, if it loses a battle, the price of grain is going to go up. If it wins a battle, the price is going to go down. And so people are going to participate in this futures market uh, and put capital into the system that's actually making it possible for these very long-distance grain deliveries. Stay ordinarily, wartime is a terrible wartime investment has no long term benefits. Right? We we buy bombs, we buy Agent Orange, we, we produce all of these things, and there's no real benefit. People to the people people have a hard time understanding that, but of course, every when you think about it, the most that a lot of that stuff is expensive and it blows up. Right. right. <laughs> of course, of course, it's you know. <laughs> so, so economists say wars are horrible, right, for yeah. economic development. But, but in this case, in this, this case. long distance uh, grain delivery device, which is the railroad corridors from New, uh, Chicago to New York, and a futures market that makes it possible for for instant delivery of those goods, or not instant delivery, but instant buying and selling for a for a later delivery. Um, that actually makes the United States a world power. And this, because uh, so, it segues beautifully with the transoceanic telegraph and the futures, and all of a sudden, new and then higher pressure steam engines, and you've got all the inclinations, or, but with the culture, the desire to do it has long been there. And then all this stuff just falls in everyone's lap in 1865, 1866. And what, talk about that. Yeah, so... So then, so that's where Russia steals, uh, America steals a march on Russia for, for a hundred years, Russia, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson is hoping to compete with, with Catherine the Great and, and, uh, the, the successors, you know, farmers in the West are hoping to be able to sell grain in Europe, but they can't do it. Once the war is over, once the futures market is created, once you can buy, um, wheat in, Chicago and sell it on the same day by telegraph in Manchester, you eliminate the, the any danger of losing money, right? Uh, the only d- danger is spoilage or something like that, destruction of your, your trip. You get insurance for that. And so the margin for grain, you ordinarily a merchant gets 10%. These merchants get 1%, but they, they send millions of bushels of grain. Uh, and, and so what we see is a very a kind of efficient market that takes place once you've got a transatlantic telegraph that goes all the way to Chicago uh, so that you can buy that grain and, and ship it over. And, um, and very deep ports in New York that, that are deeper than Odessa. And for the, it's a sea change in the world, basically, as uh, the world's grain, Europe's grain mostly comes from Russia for 100 years and then very suddenly, around 1865 and 66, most of it comes from the United States. So, and, and, and in a way, looking looking forward, um, I, I forget who it was that told me by even as late as as early as eighteen no, it must have been eighteen fifty eight. A farmer near Urbana Champaign could be selling their grain to the English market uh, somewhere in central right. Illinois. It was already possible, mm-hmm. but 
to think of America as uh, isolationist in some sort of crude cultural way is is crazy by 1873. I mean, you can see the direction of American involvement in, say, the the Great War of 1914-1918 based upon Mm -hmm. this new connection of grain to the European market, right? I mean, this is what you're arguing too. The the the, yeah. cor- the cord has been formed; it's binding them right. together. Right. I mean, p- part of it, part of what I'm pushing against is the economist argument that national economies matter more than international economies, which is the you know GDP, GNP, all of these other things. You know, their their economists will tell you that it's a very relatively large, a small amount of stuff that's traded internationally, and so that's not important if you want to talk about the economy. You can look at it as one unit. I think that's absolute bullshit and has been absolute bullshit since 10,000 BC. And uh, that that there there's enough goods flowing back and forth, primarily food, that, that, that these, these are really important, uh, a, a kind of international economy that we need to be thinking about going all the way back. And, and again, grain traders understand this. Grain traders understand that, um, that, that these black paths along which this grain travel moves is the rise and fall of empires. Ultimately, they defend, they, empires grow up, accrete themselves along these paths. And if you mess with the paths, the empires collapse. You can go to Istanbul and see the failed gates <laughs> of, you know, uh, the ancient Greek uh, empires that are there, the the uh, Roman empires that are there, the Byzantine empires that are there, the, the, the um, Turkish empires that are there. It's, it's, um, they rise and fall ultimately on these trading paths, which are everything to the kind of fiscal financial success of these institutions, which is it's just their military success as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask that: How did cheap grain change European politics from, say, eighteen seventy to nineteen hundred? Because uh, so this- your argument yeah. is radically, <laughs> radically. So. The standard, you know, uh, what what happens in Europe in the, how does Europe change in the 19th century? The standard uh, argument, and I think it has everything to do with grain, is that you have the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire that are very important and suddenly very unimportant by the end of the 19th century. And you have three um, kind of relative, well, you have Germany, which is a, a set of independent principalities, uh, primarily, which are constantly fighting with each other for 300 years. And Italy, which is broken up into all of these different pieces, both of them consolidate and become powerful states. France becomes a more powerful state uh, in this period. All three of them are consumers of grain. They have those consumption accumulation cities that are drawing in uh, thousands, millions of bushels of grain every year, uh, first from Europe, first from Russia, and then from the United States. And they tax it at a minimal level. So that uh, it doesn't make it too cheap, to, uh, too expensive to, for people to eat, but they shave enough off that it allows these massive states to, to merge. Mm-hmm. And this is this is the foundation of of World War One and World War Two is is Germany, France, and Italy as powerful states. Previously, uh, you know, France had been important for a long time, but Germany and Italy had been kind of bit players for. Uh, hundreds of years in Europe, and suddenly the, those three and their conflict with each other in relation to Russia is really important for understanding World Wars One and Two. And so I call them people call them the great powers of Europe. I call them the grain powers of Europe because they they're consuming a great deal of grain from and, uh, largely from the United States. And Austria um, steps on their own 
their own shoot right. foot feet um, because of their extremely complex internal taxation apparatus. It's really kind of awful. They have an unnatural advantage in terms of as a grain producer in this, in both you know, prior to this world and then in mm-hmm. the midst of this late nineteenth century, and they ruin it for themselves with bad, with bad administration. They do. I mean, it's it's uh, partly it's anti-Semitism, you know, feeling that the Jews inside Austria are benefiting somehow from this. Partly it's, you know, the Banat region in Hungary is the place where a lot of this grain comes from. There's a lot of flour, very high quality flour that comes out of uh, Austria, Hungary. But um, but this flour is ultimately replaced by um by grain and, and even cheap flour from the United States and, and from Russia. But but uh, yeah, so it goes from being the, uh, you know, in the 14th, 15th and 16th century, the place where food came from mm-hmm. uh, to being a place that's uh, basically eclipsed. And so the the places that sell flour before uh, or, or the that depended on flour before Austria-Hungary and Ottoman Empire collapse in this period. So uh, before we uh, tie this up, um... I love well, we do have to talk about Parvus. Parvus, uh, Alexander Israel Halpand, uh, yes. who is not as well known as other uh, pseudonyms, uh, Noms de Guerre, um, Noms de Plume, of his buddies like Trotsky and Lenin right. and Stalin. Um, but amazingly enough, he was, uh, he wasn't killed by any of them, which was kind of amazing. Uh, he died in his bed, kind of, uh, maybe someone else's, not sure. And he, uh, but yet he was somehow, well, anyway, you tell him because it was, this supposed to be a book. I was wondering if this was supposed to be a book about him at first and it became a Uh, book about Crane or did you discover him in the course of this? So, so I've been obsessing about grain for this a long time. This has been my white whale, right? Telling the story of grain and Europe. And I've, I've um, been, you know, going all the way back to my first book, uh, understanding the power of cheap wheat yeah. uh, in terms of understanding the clan and things like that. Was, was I started to see how this world works. I started to make these arguments. And then I realized that I was in, uh, unknowingly plagiarizing huh. this, this, uh, Enormously fat, not enormously fat, quite large uh, uh, communist from Eastern Europe. Trouble was he wrote in German, Russian, and Ukrainian, and I didn't know about these things. And um, yeah, I was reading Rosa Luxemburg's letters. I was going to do this as as one one does. As one does. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I was, uh, I said, uh, and uh, I was going to do this other book on called The Four Horsemen of the Liberal Apocalypse. It was going to be a parallel biographies of. Freud, um, Chekhov, uh, Rosa Luxemburg, and Dwight Moody, and um, I was, <laughs> and uh, that book is still uh, uh, in my head. But, uh, anyways, I'm reading Rosa Luxemburg's letters, and uh, she says everything I know about the grain trade and the mass strike I learned from Parvis. I thought, who is this guy Parvis? And then I realized that all these things I had been saying about grain and the 1873 crisis and the way, way in which Europe is rearranged and the United States ex- de- depending on grain for for international expansion and all these other th- sorts of things that I had been arguing from the from documents, I realized that Parvis had been saying a hundred years before me. Uh, and Parvis is this guy; he's a grain trader. And he's the person who's behind the power behind the throne. He's the person who puts together Iskra, the spark, 
which is the Bolshevik, uh, well, the uh, Socialist Party newspaper, the, both the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks initially together are, are in it. He's the one who funds it. He's the one who's got the printing press. And he hates the Russian Empire. He wants it to end. And he sees this competition from America, watches it happen from Odessa, and he starts to, to see the world again through these black paths. And he tells that story in, in very kind of obscure newspaper uh, editorials that, that it took me a long time to translate from German and then other really obscure uh, things that he wrote in Russian. Uh, but, but what he sees is this sort of international web of grain and how it makes weaknesses and strengths all over the world. And he's the person... Parvis is somebody you've not heard of, but he is the person who sends, who persuades the German government in the middle of World War One to send a sealed train of Bolsheviks to the Finland station in Russia to start the Russian Revolution. But he, um, but he, but uh, but but he very much does not go with them. No, no, he he likes he's not he tries to stand between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. He does, he's he's a he's a communist. But he's not—he's uh, not a big fan of Lenin, especially. But he understands that Lenin is going to be important and powerful, and he ends up supporting Lenin by providing an alternative source of grain. Um, well, it's—it's—it's it's, it's a complicated story. It's a complicated but he story. Yeah. Basically, feeds Germany in the midst of the famine winter. I, I just from rotten grain. For those of us uh, who like to see lefties arguing, if you want for a good time, go check out the Spartacist dictionary or entries, encyclopedia entries on on uh, on Parvis because obviously, you know, I, I think some comrades still might end up with a bullet in the back of their neck over over loyalties to Parvis. It's it's been he's been dead for a hundred years, but still he obviously arouses he arouses strong feelings. He's a very controversial person, um, and in fact, he's he's a center of many conspiracy theories. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so many conspiracy theories about him, and that, and people have not wanted to touch Barbus uh, before because of all these anti-Semitic conspiracies yeah. about you know the mastermind of the revolution or the whatever. And I think I just am sort of I'm I'm not an anti-Semite. I'm not uh, right. I'm not. I don't see a Jewish Bolshevik conspiracy here. I do think, though, that Parvis's understanding of this is crucial to understanding how Russia is on the Russian Empire is unwound. The the anti-Semitic conspiracies, I guess, because he's so obviously a wealthy man. Is this the is this the connection of the financier, the the Jewish financier with communist? So he's like right. he's like the one example that can be found. <laughs> right. right. He he, remi- he reminded me a lot more of the uh, the academic Marxist in the David Lodge novel, which is Small World. Who uh, who don't wish to, as they say, do not wish to uh, avoid the uh, not. They want to enjoy the pleasures of the world prior to the revolution. There's no reason to be restrained by bourgeois morality. Uh, that's kind of Parvis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the anti-Semitic story is you know you look you look at these German newspapers and they talk about the Jewish communist millionaires. Yeah, think, exactly. Who, who the that? hell that's is this? Here Parvis he is. is the only one. He's the only one. <laughs> Um, so, so, uh, yeah, but so, so his understanding of the world, I'm trying to give us a kind of understanding of how grain trader thinks about the world. Yeah. He's the, basically the person who supports the Turkish empire in its, uh, ability to stave off, um, you know, France and Great Britain at Gallipoli. I mean, he's the person who actually buys the artillery 
uh, and stations at near Gallipoli to defend Turkey, to prevent the, because uh, he understands how important those Straits of the Bosporus are. He understands that if the Straits of the Bosporus are opened, um, then Germany will lose. Mm-hmm. And and so, so and he, he's a communist, but he supports the German empire in this time, not because he loves Germany, but because he hates Russia, mm-hmm. he hates the Russian empire. Uh, so, so anyways, he's, he's got, he's, he's like a, what's the word, um, uh, Forrest Gump, who so, so shows up in all of these important events in, uh, the, the World War One, and he's not the mastermind that the, the, but, but he is, he does understand how important this is. And he's also the person who helps Trotsky understand how to build a communist state and having I, watched the Turkish empire. Is probably. he, um. It's really interesting that I hadn't realized he's also a connection, I guess, between war socialism in Germany and and in and Russia. I mean, but he he's there. I don't know if he's a. a I we just say he's not a mastermind. But if he's not advising Ludendorff, he's certainly a very well aware, a very keen observer of what Ludendorff is doing in in Germany in what seventeen eighteen, and uh, yeah. and able to then translate that into Russian, as it were, literally, perhaps. Right, and he, right, and he's he is. Uh, I mean, there are letters that we have uh, where there's regular communication with Ludendorff about what it is the Parvis is doing. Oh. And, and so, yeah, so so it's it's clear that Parvis is the uh, the person who, uh, as as the Germans see it, building up you know a revolutionary force inside Russia will take power take weight off the Eastern Front so that mm-hmm. they can win the war on the in the West. So it's in Germany's interest really to support a revolution in Russia. Uh, Parvis is the person who does that, but, and, and also to feed Russia and, and Parvis figures out how to feed, uh, sorry, how to feed Germany and Parvis figures out how to feed Germany mm-hmm. from uh, it's along the Baltic because he understands how that grain is moving. What um, I was pleased to see that you've got another book that's about to uh, be birthed. Um, what, what, what's that one about? And uh, no, you don't. Whoops. Coming out with UNC Press? Oh, yeah. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> you gave me a bad moment there. I, I know I talk to far too many authors, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> that book. Yeah. Uh, I have a book on the on the Bourbon South that's coming out. Uh, History of the... Uh, sorry. It's, it was supposed to be the part of this big, sprawling uh, history of the South a series that was sponsored by UNC Press, and it's about the Bourbon period. And I, what's funny about it is that I finished it, you know, almost three years ago. But, but there have been lots of uh, there have been lots of snafus with uh, COVID really? and with okay. you know editors moving and taking yeah. other jobs. So when does like that, that come out? Because then we get to talk about that. Because that'll, that'll be good. Uh, that'll be twenty twenty two, I think. Yeah, that's and, next year. Uh, that's, two, that's that's next year. That's a couple weeks away. <laughs> I just want to, I want to warn you about that. <laughs> I'm still living in 1873, yeah. so uh, oh, um, yeah. So that's about the Bourbon South, and that's the, uh, kind of an attempt to understand. It's it's a kind of environmental history and women's history and all these other sorts of histories uh, mixed together. And uh, probably, yeah, this was the white probably about agricultural commodities and agricultural. and the changing of railroad gauges. I'm betting. Yes, uh, but also about uh, rickets and, uh, uh, you know, so so just as in the late 19th century, rickets and scurvy and parvus, uh, sorry, rickets and scurvy and all these other diseases of poor people, typhus, go away 
in Europe, they come back mm-hmm. with a vengeance in the American South in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And for the same reason, okay. uh, because much of the grain is coming from uh, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio over long distances. Okay. Well, I have to say, this is a, it's a fantastic book, and we haven't even scratched like half of the, the stuff in it. <laughs> including yeah. in which the a professor of humanities uses a stats package which I can't do that but um, we that that how that how you came to do that will be a story for another day Scott Nelson thank you so much for being part of historically thinking thanks so much Al it's so great to be here it's so great to talk to somebody that knows medieval history and ancient history and all uh, these other parts of history that I that, that can actually hear me about these things on my other d- people's eyes glaze over when I talk about on the my day on my day yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right bye bye okay thanks again bye just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.